It's uh, last June, I took my oldest son, Milton, on what we called a man trip. We went to Denver, Colorado, and we went there. It was his chance. He's right before he's being be a freshman in high school. I said, hey, let's go. We, we whitewater rafted the Royal Gorge. We ziplined at some 50, 60 miles an hour. It was awesome. And then one day, we climbed uh, Pikes Peak. 14 are there in Colorado. 14,000 feet above sea level. And we took off. We started at 530 in the morning and didn't get home till that afternoon. It was an all day journey. It had snowed in June. There were times we would be walking and we would get, you know, hip deep in snow. It was absolutely amazing. We get to the top. Finally, we make it to the, to the peak of Pike's peak. And there we are. We take this picture at the summit. All is great, right? Let me show you the picture right before that one. We were miserable. Right around the 1250 mark, 12,500 elevation feet, we started to feel it. And when we got to the top, matter of fact, it was 500 elevation feet to go. And every 10 steps, I was having to stop. I thought I was going to lose everything I'd eaten for the last week. I was, I mean, I could barely move. My head was pounding. We get to the top. All I want to do is take a nap. Our guide says, don't stop. Just take the picture, you know, get you something to drink and hurry. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, you have acute mountain sickness. That's what you have, acute mountain sickness. And the only thing that will make it better is to get down lower again. And sure enough, we got back down to about 13,000 feet, 12,000 feet. And it was like we could climb this thing all over again. I mean, I felt fine. The nausea went away. The splitting headache was gone. And we're laughing and giggling all the way down. And I'm like, what happened to us, right? Acute mountain sickness, or some of us call it altitude sickness. I had a friend one time talk about altitude sickness this way. He said, there are times in our lives when we get promotions or when we get success in our lives that people don't know how to handle it and they get altitude sickness. Like all of a sudden they get up there and they forget where they've come from. They forget how to relate to people. Now all of a sudden they're put in charge and the very things they complained about their supervisors doing, they're now doing altitude sickness. They can't handle success. I always thought that was fantastic. And I really didn't understand it until I got up there and I thought, this is how it feels. This is how it feels. Remember, we've said all along in this journey and and the story of Joseph is, character is formed when we overcome obstacles in life. We've talked about overcoming the obstacles of compromise and temptation and situations. And today we're going to talk about overcoming the obstacle of success. How do you handle success? How do you handle when things go well? A promotion. It's sometimes easy to just focus on how do we handle it when things go wrong or when things are terrible or we find ourselves in situations that we never imagined. But now the question is, is how do you handle success? Do you get altitude sickness or are you able to handle it like Joseph is going to? If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 41. 
Remember, he's handled this idea of compromise. Grew up in a family where his dad was the chief compromiser, a passive. His brothers hated him. And then he had to overcome temptation as he was sold into slavery. And, and Potiphar's wife makes these sexual advances at him. And he resists temptation. He overcomes that. And then last week, as he is thrown wrongfully into prison because Potiphar's wife frames him and lies about him, he's thrown into prison and he overcomes the obstacle of, of situation and of circumstance and of these low moments. And now we figure that you couldn't get any worse for Joseph. And it's actually going to get a little better as he's going to start to see some success. And it'll be interesting to see how he handles it. Verse one, chapter 41, two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. Two years later, that means Joseph has been in prison at least two years. I think he's probably been in prison for two or three years before that because he had to earn his right not to just be a slave, but as we learned last week in chapter 40, he was over the whole prison. He became number two in charge. He did that with his dad as he took care of all the sheep. He has done that in Potiphar's house as everything was put under his control. He did it in prison as he worked again and showed his administrative skills and his gift, and he was put in charge in prison. And so for two years, he's there. Two years later is referring to when the cupbearer and the baker had dreams in prison to which he interpreted and he interpreted correctly. And Joseph just says, please remember me. And they won't. So he's now in prison for two more years. But Pharaoh's going to have a dream. It says he was standing beside the Nile. When seven healthy-looking, well-fed cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, sickly and thin, they came up from the Nile and stood beside those cows along the bank of the Nile. And the sickly, thin cows ate the healthy, well-fed cows. And then Pharaoh woke up. When you're listening to this, this is, seems just like one of those deals where you have some bad cheese and you have a nightmare that night, right? Or maybe you watch something on TV and you then put all of your family members in that show. Does anybody do that? That's what my wife does. We watch something at night. The next day, it's like, wow, I got to hear about how we were in that story. That's just, you might think about that's how it is. And so here we have these healthy cows that come out of the Nile. They're good looking cows. And then you have some sickly cows come out and they eat the well-fed cows. And I'm sure that was pretty kind of graphic as you think about this dream or nightmare, if you will. And so he wakes up and then it says he's going to go back to sleep, verse five, and he dreamed a second time. Seven heads of grain, plump and ripe, came up on one stalk. And after them, seven heads of grain, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven plump, ripe ones. And then Pharaoh woke up and it was only a dream. Very similar, you got this one stalk with seven good full heads of grain on it. And then these seven withered ones show up and they devour the seven plump ones. He wakes up and he is confused. He recognizes it's only a dream. Verse 8. When morning came, he was troubled. So he summoned all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but no one could interpret them for him. He was troubled. I don't know about you, but as I read this, I'm like, it doesn't seem that much to be troubled about, right? I have weird dreams all the time. And I have some that don't make sense. And most of the time, I can't even remember some of my dreams by the time I get to the breakfast table. 
And when you think about this one, you would think some cows, some sick cows, grain, some, some scorched grain. Like, I don't understand this. Is it really that big of a deal? And when I begin to show you a little bit about Egyptian culture here, I want you to understand why Pharaoh is troubled. Why he's troubled. Because Pharaoh is, in essence, in charge as this, if you will, divine God of making sure that Egypt is taken care of. It's called ma'at. That's what they believed is this harmony between harvest and production and reaping and sowing. And so it was Pharaoh's responsibility to make sure this ma'at was constantly in play. We might remember this same idea in Buddhism with the yin and the yang, or this idea that, you know, karma, the the good things, and then there'll be bad things or bad things are replaced with good things, whatever. This idea that somehow he's got to keep harmony going. And to make it more complicated, the Nile was at the center of Egyptian life. We think about rain as being something that would, if rain would come, then that would water the fields and make grass to grow or our crops to produce. But that's not the way it worked in Egypt. The way it worked in Egypt is that the Nile would overflow its banks. And there was a God of the Nile and there was specifically a God who was over that inundation or that flooding or lack thereof. His name was Hapi. And what he would do is the Pharaoh was supposed to be in charge of all this ma'at and they would worship this God named Hapi. And if they worshiped him just right and gave all the sacrifices just right, the Nile would overflow its banks just enough. To keep all of the land fertile, to make sure all the, the crops would, would, uh, would grow the way they should and so that harvest could take place. And then the Nile would, would go back and it would go back into its banks and it would flow like it should. But sometimes the Nile would flood too much. It would inundate too much. And too much water would create uh, circumstances where the crops couldn't grow. And then sometimes it wouldn't inundate enough. And this is the problem because anytime Pharaoh would have a dream about the Nile, it would be a very big deal to him. Because guess who's in charge of this? Guess who's the one who is supposed to be this mediator on behalf of Egypt to make sure this thing works? And if Pharaoh's doing a bad job, then Hapi's not going to be happy and Maat's going to be all over the place and the Nile's not going to work. Let me take it a step further. Verse 8, it says they were magicians and these interpreters, and they called them from all over because he needed an interpretation to this dream. Let me tell you how deep this goes in Egyptian culture. This was so a part of who they were, dreams and interpreting it, they had dream books. They had books that you could open up like a reference and say, cows mean this. Wheat means this. Overflowing of the Nile means this. And they would open up a book like you would open up, you know, an encyclopedia and you would interpret it. That's how they would do it. Not only did they have books, they had schools. Dream schools. Sign me up for that one, right? 
where you go to school and you learn how to open a dream book and interpret dreams. That is how significant this is. This is not just some run-of-the-mill, willy-nilly old dream. This is a dream about the Nile. It's a dream about Egyptian survival. It is a dream about Pharaoh himself who sees himself as a god. And so he sees this, he gets this, and you bet he's troubled. And he calls everybody around and come to find out no one can interpret the dream. No one. It's not in the books anywhere. It's not in any of their schooling. There's no answers to be found. And this doesn't just shed a bad light on the interpreters. It sheds a bad light on Pharaoh. Because Pharaoh's supposed to be divine. He should have the answers. He should have them. Now, if you're just reading this like you're reading a good story, you can tell what Moses is doing here, can't you? Because we've already had two dreams in Genesis 37. Remember the two dreams of Joseph? And then we had two dreams in the last chapter, the baker and the cupbearer. And who's interpreted those dreams each time? Joseph. And so as you read, you're kind of thinking, ooh, I can see it. Joseph's coming on the scene, right? Let's keep reading. Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, today I remember my faults. Pharaoh had been angry with his servants and he put me and the chief baker in the custody of the captain of the guard. Remember last week? We don't know what they did, but they did something wrong. They were thrown into prison and They had dreams and Joseph interpreted them. Matter of fact, verse 11 says, he and I, the baker and myself had dreams on the same night and each dream had its own meaning. Verse 12. Now a young Hebrew, a slave of the captain of the guards was there with us. And he, or excuse me, we told him our dreams. He interpreted the dreams for us and each had its own interpretation. And it turned out just the way he interpreted them to us. And I was restored to my position and the other man was hanged. This is the cupbearer when Joseph said, remember me, I'm telling you how this is going to work. The cupbearer doesn't remember him for two whole years. And then finally, when Pharaoh's troubled, when Pharaoh has exhausted all his resources, the cupbearer's like, oh yeah, oh yeah, there was a guy down there. And you notice he calls him a Hebrew slave. He doesn't even call him by his name. This is just for free. I think the cupbearer has altitude sickness. Right? You don't mean to tell me you can't remember the guy's name who basically told you about your dream and said you were going to go back to the top and be with the Pharaoh again? You can't remember Joseph? Come on, man. Right? He says, my bad, I remember, here it is, when you had your big birthday party and you called me up and you called the baker up, remember, baker lost his head, I'm here with you today, the guy that told us all that was going to happen, it was a Hebrew slave. He's down there in prison. Do you, do you see how desperate Pharaoh must be if he's fixing to take this advice? You think how desperate he is if he's fixing to call up a slave out of prison To potentially interpret this dream. Let's keep reading. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph. And they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes. And went to Pharaoh. When I think about success and how to handle it. This is where I first begin to see. How Joseph's going to handle it. First thing is. Is he's not distracted by the opportunity. 
He's not distracted by the opportunity. And you need to understand it's a big opportunity. That's when I went into all of this stuff about uh, Hapi and the gods and Ma'at. I wanted you to see this is a big deal and it's a big deal for Pharaoh on top of the fact that you have a slave who's in prison who is going from the lowest possible place. Now he is going to get an audience with Pharaoh. I don't know about you, but this is an awesome opportunity, isn't it? And sometimes we are afforded amazing opportunities in this life. And instead of seeing them for what they are, we become distracted by them. They now all of a sudden take all of our focus and all of our effort and all of our energy. Imagine if this had happened in the day and age of social media, what Joseph could have done. Take a picture, snap on my way to see Pharaoh. Hashtag big break. Right? Can you imagine Facebook in a really long paragraph after paragraph of how bad it's been? And finally, I've made it to Pharaoh. Click, how do you like my clean face? Hashtag on my way. Right? What do you think? Do we do this? The opportunities arise and we are so distracted by them. We make so much of the opportunity that we forget maybe who we are, where we've been, and what could be the result of this. And is God at work? And it's just now all about us. The opportunity, our big break, the moment we've been waiting for. Boss calls you in. It's... It's time to get that yearly review. Oh, come on. This is my chance. Big break. I've had a great year. Record sales. It's my big break as I try out for the team. This is my chance to prove to everybody I can do it. It's my big break. And now it's just all about the opportunity and all about that situation rather than anything else. Joseph's not going to be distracted by that. Matter of fact, keep looking. Verse 15. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and no one can interpret it. But I have heard it said that you, about you, that you can hear it and you can interpret it. I've heard it said. Can you imagine that? I mean, just, <laughs> I know it's hard to imagine. It's just black and white there. I want you to see it. Pharaoh looks at him and says, I got no one in this massive empire that can help me, but I think you can. What does that do in you? What does that do in you? No one can do what I need you to do. No one can help me, but I think you can. Let me tell you another thing that we have to do in order to handle success is we can't be distracted by the opportunity and we can't be seduced by praise and flattery seduced because it's seductive, isn't it? It's seductive. What if your boss called you in tomorrow and says, hey, just between me and you, doors are closed. I just want you to know nobody in this business can do this, but you can. What would it do to you? What would it do? Student, teacher calls you up after everybody else leaves the class and says, you know what? No one in this class understands this, but you do. What would you do? 
What does it do in us? It's crazy how praise and flattery, they're seductive, aren't they? Can you imagine hearing this? And not only hearing this, but can you imagine all of the commotion as Joseph is yanked out of prison, as they go down there and say, we're looking for that Hebrew slave. And Joseph looks up and everybody in the prison looks up and they yank him out and they shave his face and they put all this stuff on. And Joseph's like, what's going on? I don't know, but man, you got an audience. It's, you better get ready. I think it's something about dreams. Can you imagine what was going on? And then he, Joseph says, well, why are they picking me? Well, the cupbearer said, you're the man. Can you imagine what it would do to you? Let me me talk about flattery just for a moment from, from scripture, because I think sometimes it, it sneaks up on us. Let me show it to you in uh, Proverbs. Proverbs 29 says this, 29.5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. You flatter him, you praise. That praise can be a net, trip you up, catch you. Before you know it, you're listening to it and you're believing the press, aren't you? What about verse 28, chapter 28 in Proverbs? He says this. One who rebukes a person will later find more favor than the one who flatters with his tongue. The word is smooth. Smooth. More favor to rebuke than to just sit back and say, you're so good. crazy in Mark chapter 12 the Pharisee did, Pharisees had tried it all and they had come at him and look at what they tried now in verse 14 of Mark chapter 12 when they the Pharisees came they said to him teacher we know you are truthful and defer to no one and you don't show partiality but teach truthfully the way of God is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not Should we pay or should we not pay? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, smoothing Jesus. Oh, you're so good. You're so truthful. Let me lay a net at your feet with that. Let me trick you. Flatteries, praise. If we're not careful, man, it just makes our head get big, doesn't it? That ego gets stroked and we want to hear it and hear it and hear it. And before long, you go to believing all those clippings about yourself, don't you? All of them. I don't even... I had a chance before I was here in in Austin, Texas. I got a chance to speak... Just like this, I was teaching pastor at Hill Country Bible Church, and um, it was a church of eight to 10,000. And on a Sunday morning, instead of 400 in the room, it'd be 2,000 in the room for a service. And let me tell you, it'll do something to you. As you get down, and somebody says, Wow, you did great. You did do pretty good, I guess. And just. It just gets you. I remember one time after being there, city of a million people, I walk out of the YMCA and a lady drives by, stops her minivan 
She says, you're the guy that preaches at Hill Country. Can I take a picture? And I remember, I wish <laughs> I had, I didn't even know what to do. And when I got in the car, I was like, she took a picture of me. And if, if we're not careful, this stuff will eat us up. It'll eat us up because we want it. We need it. We think, oh, look at me. Joseph isn't distracted by the opportunity. And he's not seduced by the praise. And let me show you how. Verse 16. I am not able to. Isn't that good? That's your response to Pharaoh? No one can do it but you, my man. Come bearers singing your praise. You come in with the resume. He's looking sharp, shaved, well-dressed. Pharaoh says, you're the man. And he says, I'm not able to do it. Joseph answered Pharaoh. And then he says this, and it's even gutsier. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. It's not me. It's not about me. This isn't about my dream and my ability or my gifts or my situation. This is about God and he is able to do this. He is able to make this happen. Third thing, you ready? We don't want to be distracted by the opportunity. We don't want to be seduced by the praise. And the third one I would say is you want to make sure you're not depending on your gift or ability or talent that you're depending on something else. There are times in our lives where we think we can wing it because I'm good enough at sales. I'm good enough with people. I'm talented in this area. I can trust me. I can trust my abilities. I can trust my stuff. I can trust me. And we begin to depend on the gift and we begin to depend on the ability and we begin to depend on the talent and that gift overshadows us. Tim Elmore, a great leader, says this. We've got to be careful about the oversized gift where your gift is so big that it overcomes your character. And you can't tell me you haven't seen it in people. You know it? Johnny Manziel, all the talent in the world, gift was way too big for his character. Des Bryant, Antonio Brown, let me move off of sports. Macaulay Calkin, Justin Bieber, Miley Cyrus, people who get success, and it is so big in their gift that it overcomes their character and it drags them instead of using it for something great. You know what I mean, don't you? Bible, Samson, David got altitude sickness. Saul got altitude sickness. The guys that hung out with Jesus the closest, the disciples, even at times, got altitude sickness when they said, who's going to get to sit at your right hand? Who? Which one of us? You're kidding me, right? You're kidding Oversized gift 
We depend so much on it that we quit looking to God. We quit thinking we need him. We don't really need to read the Bible anymore because I'm good on my own. Prayer? What do I need to pray for? Do you know how talented I am? Be in community or a small group. Do you know what position I have? Do you see how successful I am? I can depend on me. Joseph does none of that. No altitude sickness whatsoever. He just sits back and says, you can do it. God can do it. Sitting about me. Pharaoh doesn't flinch. Verse 17. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, here's my dream. In my dream, I was standing by the bank of the Nile. And when seven well-fed, healthy-looking cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds, after them, seven other cows, ugly, very sickly, and thin came up. I've never seen such ugly ones as these in all the land of Egypt. It's funny. He's going to kind of tell some more information as he tells the dream. That's kind of what we do, right? Oh, there's more information about the dream. Or maybe he's interpreting it himself here. He says, there's more to it. They were, I'd never seen them like this before. And then I woke up. And in my dream, I had also seen, verse 22, seven heads of grain, plump and ripe, coming up from one stalk. And after them, seven heads of grain, withered thin, scorched by the east wind. They sprouted up. And then the thin heads of grain swallowed the seven plump ones. And I told this to the magicians, but no one can tell me what it means. There it is again, same stuff. What in the world does this mean? And Joseph says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. And oh, by the way, in case you want to give me credit, here it is. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. Don't you love that? Like he doesn't just tip his hand and say, let me start my press conference with, I really, I really want to give all the praise and glory to God. And then I'm going to talk about myself for the next 20 minutes. What does he do? God is going to do this for you. Verse 26. The seven good cows are seven years. And the seven ripe heads are seven years. So those two things mean the same thing. Seven good cows, seven good beautiful heads of grain. They both mean seven years. And the dreams mean the same thing. The seven thin, ugly cows that came up after them are seven years too. And there's seven, and the seven worthless scorched heads of grain are seven years of famine. So if you're counting, this is 14. 17 good years, or excuse me, seven good years, seven bad years. And then he says, verse 28. It's just as I told Pharaoh, there it is again. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Just in case, in the middle of my interpretation, this isn't about me, it's about God. God has shown Pharaoh what he's about to do. Verse 29, seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. And after them, seven years of famine will take place and all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will devastate the land. The abundance of the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows. For the famine will be very severe. And since the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that this matter has been determined by God. It's going to be carried out soon. This is how it's going down. It's going to happen and you've got to be, get ready for it. Seven good years, but those seven good years are going to be overtaken by seven bad years. And those seven bad years are going to be so bad that the land will not recover. And when Pharaoh hears that, that is not good news for a man who's supposed to keep ma'at. It's bad news, isn't it? It's terrible news. And not only that, 
Joseph says, God's going to make it happen. Not Hapi, not any of your other thousand gods. Elohim is going to do it. God is going to do it. I'm going to come back to that here in a minute. This is great. Verse 33. So now let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Before I read some more, you got to see this. His job was only to interpret the dream. At the end of verse 32, he could have dropped the mic and walked out. That's it. That's all he was asked to do. But Joseph, remember, has this amazing ability to lead and be executive and have this administrative skill. And so Joseph sits back in on the spot, on the spot, doesn't just interpret the dream, comes up with a solution for the dream. Have you ever been in a room with somebody like that? Have you ever been in the room? I've seen it once or twice in my life. One of my friends, Bob King, he was an executive pastor at a large church. He's now over a mission of hope. And I'm telling you, matter of fact, his wall was painted in that paint that's like dry erase marker paint. You know what I mean? Where he could just write wherever he wanted on the wall and erase it. And if you went into his office and you had some issue or problem, he, I mean, he would draw something up on the board in two minutes. And you're like, dude, you got to slow down. How are you doing this? How are you processing? How are you solving this? Have you ever been around those people before? It is crazy to see the way their mind works. I think Joseph is like that. And he sits back and says, here's the plan. You need a, you need a wise discerning man over the land. Verse 34, let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take a fifth of the harvest or 20% of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. So while the getting is good, take 20%. Then let them gather all the excess food during these good years that are coming under Pharaoh's authority. Store the grain in the cities so that they preserve it as food. Take 20% all right off the top. Anything that's left over because the getting is so good, take it, put it in a storehouse and hold on to it for seven years. Verse 36, the food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by famine. You're going to have all this left over. And when it's really bad, you're going to go to those stores and say, look at all this grain we have to help us through. Interprets the dream, gives a solution to the problem. Fourth. Don't want to be distracted by the opportunity. We don't want to be seduced by praise. We don't want to depend on our own gift. Fourth, you got to remember the source. You got to remember the source. James 1 says every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And as you look at this, it is clear Joseph remembers the source. It's not just the gift, he knows the giver. And he's recognizing the giver, and he's giving all credit to the giver. God, God, God will do. God can do it. And then fifth, Joseph knows it's not about Joseph. Joseph knows it's not about Joseph. He doesn't start giving an answer to the problem by saying this. You need to get a young, discerning, wise man and put him in charge. Right? Don't need to do that. He didn't. He doesn't say his name. He said, this is what you need to do. 
And then not only that, he says, so the people won't be wiped out. He's like, it's not about you, Pharaoh. It's not about me. It's so that people won't die. It's so that people won't be wiped out. Joseph knows this isn't about Joseph. There's something bigger at play. There's something larger at stake. And when I think about this, I'm blown away at all of the things that we want this to always be about us, don't we? And for all of the beauty that, that our, our modern technology gives us, one of its downfalls is it, it is incredibly easy to make this thing all about us, isn't it? All about us. At least Terrell Owens, when he signed with the Dallas Cowboys, was honest when he said, get your popcorn because I love me some me. At least he was honest. Or I was telling my kids the other day about Chad Johnson when he was a receiver for the Bengals, legally changed his name to Ocho Cinco, so that's what it would read on the back of his jersey. Love me some me. Right? And you may not have that kind of sphere of influence, but you might go back through your feeds and see, do I love me some me? Is it all about me? Joseph knows it's not. Let me go back to this. Let me go back to this idea that he is saying God is going to do it. Go back to that. He is looking at Pharaoh and saying, "All your gods, whatever. I know the God who's really in control." And that is how Joseph ultimately says, "It's not about Joseph." So much so that look at what Pharaoh says in verse thirty-two. Excuse me, verse thirty-seven. The, pro- the proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find anyone like this? A man who has God's spirit in him? Like just before you read that, you're like, oh, Joseph's fixing to get all the credit. But he says, no, 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 no. Is there anyone like this who has God's spirit in him? I don't know if Pharaoh had a clue about the the Hebrew God. I don't know if he meant the Holy Spirit or if he just meant like something else. I just know that he is clear that Joseph's not getting the credit here. There's somebody else in charge. And just to make it clear, Pharaoh says, verse 39, Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as intelligent and wise as you are. God did this. God did. Let me show you something pretty cool, I think, later on. Exodus chapter 12. You'll remember there'll be 10 plagues in the future. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, it'll be on the screen, says this. I will pass through the land of Egypt on the night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. God was showing himself 500 years prior to this to tell Pharaoh, there's a God that is greater. And if you won't bow to him, I will demonstrate physically to you that he is greater. He's greater. And every one of those plagues was an attack on some Egyptian god. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Or just to show you just how deep it went, listen to Ezekiel 29. 
He says this, In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, turn your face toward Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all of Egypt, and speak to him and say, This is what the Lord God says to you. Look, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, a great monster lying in the middle of the Nile. There it is, in the middle of the Nile River, who says, My Nile is my own. This is years later. Pharaoh and Egypt is still worshiping these false gods. They have been shown time after time after time that this is, you ought to worship God, not yourselves. I won't read the rest of it, but it says he's going to drag him out of the middle of the Nile. In verse 6, then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am Yahweh For they have been a staff made of a reed to the house of Israel. And when Israel grasped you by the hand, you splintered, tearing all their shoulders. And when they leaned on you, you shattered and made all their hips unsteady. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. I'm going to bring a sword against you and wipe out man and animal from you. And the land of Egypt will be a desolate ruin. And they will know that I am Yahweh. Joseph is declaring Here's the God, not you, not Ma'at, not Hapi, God. It's not about Joseph. So it leads me to us. Some of us might sit back and say, well, Russell, I am so glad I am not successful. <laughs> All those successful people in the room, give it to them, Russell, right? I'm not successful. I mean, I'm not got where I want to get. I hadn't got all, oh, man, good grief, man. I'm good for me. No, 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 no. <laughs> Remember, everything we have is a blessing from God, right? And you all have a gift, ability, or a talent. It's been given to you by God. So the question is, what are you going to use it for? To make much of you or to make much of God and to edify the body? Two more passages and I'll be done. Corinthians says this as he talks about the spiritual gifts. Verse 7, chapter 12. There's been a demonstration of the Spirit, and it's given to each person to produce what is beneficial. You've not been given this to make much of yourself. You've not been given this so that everybody can see, look how spiritual you are. It is to be beneficial. And if you're not using it, and you're not in the body, a part of the body, using your gift to do your job, then you're not being beneficial. Or if you are doing it so that you can secretly go home and say, look at me. It's not beneficial. Or in more direct terms, Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.10, based on the gift each one has received, each one has received, Use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. You serving others? Or is this thing all about you? Are you using it to be beneficial? Or do you love you some you? Success is an obstacle that has to be overcome for our character to be formed. Let me pray for us. Father, as I uh, think about Joseph, just chapter in and chapter out, he, he's given us some great 
models what it looks like to, to build this in, in good times and in bad. So, Lord, I pray for us that we would learn. And then ultimately, Lord, it makes me think of the greatest model, Jesus Christ. Who didn't get altitude sickness. Matter of fact, Philippians 2 said he came down here humbly to live a a life of a servant and to die an obedient death. If anyone could have gotten altitude sickness, it was Jesus and yet he doesn't. And because of that, he dies on the cross and three days later comes back to life and gives us an opportunity to be restored to you. So, Lord, thank you for the gifts you give us. Thank you for the blessings that we receive. But, Lord, help us to use them to point to you. Help us to use them to be beneficial and to serve others. Lord, help us to not have altitude sickness. To struggle with success. Thank you when you give it. But help us point to you. Thank you for listening. This audio is provided as a free ministry of Radius Church. If you would like to reproduce this audio, please feel free to do so. We ask that you do not charge for any reproductions that you make. If you would like to know more about Radius, please visit us online at radiuschurch.org or download our app from your app store.